This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome back to the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I want to talk today about something known as Takatsubu's cardiomyopathy. I like the name. Uh, and I think it's a really neat disease process that I've seen several times in our intensive care unit. And I hope that you're able to recognize it as well in your intensive care unit. What Takasubu's cardiomyopathy is, by another name, it's also known as transient left ventricular apical ballooning syndrome. And what it is, is it's basically left ventricular dysfunction. You'll see some EKG changes that may limit, excuse me, may mimic an acute myocardial infarction. And you may even see release of myocardial enzymes that you would typically see in something like a uh, coronary artery disease. Now, the Japanese first described this back in 1991, and they gave the name uh, to it of a Takotsubu's cardiomyopathy. And what it is, is that when you did an echo or you did a cardiac cath, the appearance of the left ventricle appeared that of a, a narrow neck and an apical ballooning. And if you've ever seen this on an echo, it's precisely what it looks like. Um, and so this is the pot that they use in Japan to uh, trap octopus with. It has a very similar appearance as this left, atric, uh, left ventricle. And so they gave that name of Takasubu's cardiomyopathy. Uh, for those of you who don't speak Japanese and, and can't remember that name, Takasubas, there are other names associated with it. We mentioned already apical ballooning syndrome. It's also known uh, as uh, ampulla cardiomyopathy, again, due to a description of the wall abnormalities of the apex of the left ventricle. Now, as we said, this was first described in 1991, and it has been described in several case series, both Japan as well as um, uh, Europe and, and as well as in North America. Now, it has um, symptoms that are great mimickers, and what it mimics is somebody who's having basically acute cardiac failure, perhaps from acute coronary syndrome. Like we said, you'll see EKG changes, you'll see elevation of your cardiac isoenzymes, you may see a patient who appears to be in cardiogenic shock, but when you do a cardiac cath on these patients, uh, frequently you'll not see any uh, obstructive coronary lesions. And so that's, you know, a, a great mimicker. Uh, now, this is a disease process that is frequently self-limiting and has a very high survival rate. Uh, and typically, the patients will resolve this uh, cardiomyopathy and the cardiogenic shock associated with it, typically in a period of days to weeks. Several theories have been put out as to what's responsible for the development of Takasubu's cardiomyopathy. Some people have thought that it may be secondary to multivessel coronary artery vasospasm. Other people feel that there may be a dysfunction in the coronary micro microvascular function. Uh, and then there's this concept of a catecholamine-mediated cardiotoxicity. Now, this was really first described in the literature as regards to Takasubas initially in 1991. But you go back and look in Burns, for instance, all the way back into the 60s, Charlie Baxter described this idea of perhaps a soluble myocardial depressant factor. And anybody who's ever taken care of large burns has seen that, particularly early on, uh, after a, uh, a person is injured with acute burn syndrome or acute burns, that they may have a syndrome where they basically will have a low cardiac 
uh, state. And this we've typically contrasted this in the past compared to a trauma patient. A trauma patient will have a very predictable cardiovascular response, increased heart rate, uh, increased contractility, uh, an increase in cardiac output. Where a burn patient, anybody who's got experience in caring for these patients, wouldn't be surprised to see that a patient in their early 24 to 48 hours from a burn injury typically is not demonstrating a, a syndrome uh, of high cardiac output and a high contractility. And some people have described really for decades that perhaps there is a uh, soluble myocardial depressant factor that we see in burn patients. Is this what's going on early on that we see a Takasubu's-like cardiomyopathy in burn patients? And is this uh, syndrome that we're seeing related to perhaps a catecholamine-induced uh, toxicity to the heart? Now, how often is this actually occurring? We're not actually certain. There was an article by uh, Bybee and colleagues published in the American Journal of Cardiology back in 2004 that the apical ballooning syndrome accounted for approximately 2.2% of their suspected ST segment uh, elevation acute coronary syndromes. And numerous other papers have published similar types of incidences ranging from about 17 to 2.2% of the cases thought to be uh, sudden onset of heart failure with abnormal Q waves, ST, T wave changes suggestive of acute MI on emission were actually uh, this apical ballooning syndrome. The patient features uh, appear to be a broad ranges of age for patients from the age of 10 to about 89 years of age have been reported. Other comorbid conditions, about 43% of these patients have hypertension, about 11% diabetes. Uh, dyslipidemia is present in about 25% of them, and about 23% have some sort of history of current or past smoking history. The most common symptoms are those that you would expect since this is a mimic of somebody having acute coronary syndrome, and that's things like chest pain and shortness of breath. However, we did say that a large percentage of these patients do present with some sort of cardiogenic shock. The actual number is about 5%, but uh, you can have cardiogenic shock as well as ventricular fibrillation uh, in these patients. When does this apical ballooning syndrome seem to occur? It's typically uh, preceded by some sort of emotional or physical stress. Clearly, in the patients that we've seen in our intensive care unit, that physical stress has been some sort of significant trauma, either mechanical trauma or in the case of thermal trauma. But it also has been reported in cases of emotional distress as well, such as the unexpected death of a relative or a victim of domestic abuse or even things like confrontational arguments where patients presented with a significant medical diagnosis. I mentioned that physical stressors that we typically see are that of a significant traumatic injury, but there's also been um, physical stressors in, of a non-medical nature that are commonly associated with this uh, cardiomyopathy, such as exhausting work, an asthma attack, a gastric endoscopy. In an evaluation of large case series, they found about 34% of patients, they weren't able to identify any emotional or physical stressful event that led up to the apical ballooning syndrome. Switching to what does the EKG look like in these patients, the most common abnormalities on the EKG are ST segment elevation as well as T wave inversions. When you get your cardiac isoenzymes and your troponins, there is a possibility that they're going to be elevated as well. Troponin is elevated in approximately 82.6% of these patients. Elevation of CKMB levels are elevated in approximately 74% of patients with apical ballooning syndrome. 
We are saying that they are elevated, but they're only usually elevated only slightly. These are not typically the patients you see who the troponins are leveled are measured in scientific notation. Uh, they will be elevated to the positive level, but these aren't the sky-high level patients that you'll commonly see, people who are having a significant uh, coronary event. When these patients go for cardiac catheterization or echocardiography, they will typically have uh, the wall motion abnormalities that we've described, that apical ballooning, and a depression of their ejection fraction. And that depression, uh, that ejection fraction may be uh, depressed for a period of several days or even, uh, in some cases, several months. Despite having marked depression of their ejection fractions over a period of days to weeks, all patients will experience a dramatic improvement and their left ventricular function. And of patients who survive this uh, apical ballooning syndrome, um, the wall motion abnormalities completely resolve in patients who survive. The prognosis is excellent. Uh, depending on the series, the prognosis will range from zero to about 7%. Uh, occasionally, like I said, this is a heart failure kind of syndrome, and so you'll have pulmonary edema is the most common clinical complication associated uh, with this disorder. So as a general rule, be mindful that this is self-limiting and has an excellent prognosis, even though that at the initial onset, things may seem rather ominous. You may have a patient who is a picture of ST segment changes. They may have elevated troponin. They may have a very poor ejection fraction uh, and, and really be in the throes of a cardiogenic shock. But the prognosis is excellent, and this will recover. Patients recover typically in a period of days or perhaps uh, into the order of weeks. Treatment for this is usually supportive because, as we said, the left, ventricle, the left ventricle usually returns back to its basal state in a period of weeks. It may be necessary to administer uh, cardioprotective drugs such as uh, beta blockers if the patient will uh, tolerate it. But if they're in a state of cardiogenic shock, that may become difficult. The patient may need a, a mechanical assist device, this is like an intraaortic balloon pump. Uh, if they're developing things such as pulmonary edema, you're going to need to treat the pulmonary edema with uh, diuretics uh, and uh, treat them much like you would a congestive heart failure. Uh, angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors, uh, beta blockers, uh, should be prescribed as routine therapy as you would for almost any patient who is uh, demonstrating symptoms of left ventricular dysfunction. One of the things you need to be mindful of, and we have seen this in our patients, is that is the development of thrombosis at the apex. Again, if you're if you're imagine that you've got this dilating of the apex, that's going to create some uh, stagnation of flow, which is going to predispose the development of thrombosis. Uh, and we have seen this in our patients as well who've developed this syndrome. There are uncertainties about the use of anticoagulation drugs in patients with stress-induced cardiomyopathy uh, because of the possibility of stress cardiomyopathy being complicated by cardiac rupture. And so it's still controversial whether heparin administration should be advisable uh, in this particular patient population. But the number of cases of reported cardiac rupture is really low uh, compared to the number of cases of left ventricular thrombosis. And therefore, for that reason, heparinization of the acute phase of stress cardiomyopathy may be necessary or may be prudent. So that is a very brief review of Takatsubu's uh, cardiomyopathy, or also known as apical ballooning syndrome. It is a great mimicker, and again, if you're thinking of high catecholamine uh, environments, this is something to be considered of.
You've been listening to IC Rounds, and my name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Thanks for downloading us. Uh, you can download us on iTunes. If you find the podcast useful, by all means, please uh, leave positive feedback at the iTunes page. That helps us dramatically, and we certainly appreciate your help. Uh, there are some exciting changes in the very near future for the podcast, which I hope will continue to allow us to produce a, a quality podcast. We're going to be able to marshal increased resources that will hopefully continue to make this a valuable educational tool for you. Thanks for downloading and have a great day. Thank you.